Hey, welcome to the Scrum GBH's Politics Podcast. I'm Adam Riley. We're back after a spring hiatus with a really good episode. My colleague Soraya Wintersmith and I are joined by State Rep John Santiago, who talks about the state of his campaign for mayor of Boston, his assessment of Marty Walsh's legacy, and what he thinks of acting mayor Kim Janey's leadership so far. Take a listen. Let me start by asking you for people who are interested in the mayor's race but haven't been paying super close attention to what's happened over the last few weeks. Can you give a recap of major developments involving your campaign? I know you've gotten some endorsements from legislative colleagues who represent Boston, also some big union endorsements. Can you run through uh, some of those for us? So it's been about two months since we launched this campaign in late February. And we're off to a roaring start. You know, we received a number of endorsements across the entire city. Um, we have a tremendous amount of support from Beacon Hill. We've had, I want to say, five legislators from their respective neighborhoods, either the North End, West Roxbury, Austin, Bryan, Charlestown, hop on board in this campaign. And there will be more coming in the near future. But we've also developed um, an important amount of support from the labor community as well. You know, local 223. Um, for the former mayor, Marty Walsh's union from Dorchester, an important um, labor union in the city of Boston, had endorsed our campaign a couple of weeks ago. And just um, this past week, SEIU NAGE also endorsed our campaign. You know, this is in addition to the Latino Victory Fund, uh, which is a national organization dedicated to getting Latinos elected into office. And I mean, there's a swell support also from the community level. Horace Small, a longtime activist, community member from the African-American community, community recently endorsed our campaign for mayor. I didn't know that Horace Small, who I actually haven't talked to in years, but used to talk to a lot. I didn't know that he endorsed yeah. you guys. No, so there's been a groundswell support from all across the city, in each and every neighborhood. You know, people dedicated to making sure that we bring back Boston stronger than ever. And that, um, you know, our recovery is very much rooted in equity and opportunity. And along those efforts, we have put forth, I would argue, yeah, some of the best grassroots organizing that I've been a part of. You know, before I was a physician, I was actually a community organizer for a number of years. And we've really put forth those types of tactics and skills into this campaign. Um, just this past week, we've topped over 15,000 voter contacts um, with phones, with canvassing across the entire city again. You know, when I ran in 2018, I was very much committed to having the most grassroots operation uh, in the city, uh, one that I personally knocked on 9,000 doors. And listen, if I could knock on every door in the city of Boston, I would, but that's a lot of doors, right? <laughs> and so we are going out and reaching out to enthusiastic volunteers, campaign staff who are embracing this campaign, embracing this candidacy, and are out there on the doors and talking to voters each and every day. Representative Santiago, you said that your uncle's inability to access medical care just while being blocks away from some of the world's greatest medical institutions is really a tragic reflection of system systemic inequities in Boston. And I wonder what else informs how you've experienced the city. I'm presuming that when you came here from the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico, you were a young kid. So kind of walk us through experiencing Boston from then up until now. You're absolutely right, Saraya. I think the tragic loss of my uncle and his infection with HIV, and he ultimately passed from AIDS, leaving you know his son, my cousin, became an AIDS orphan. And this struck me, even at a young age, as unfair, unjust. 
and needed to be rectified. And as a result, I subsequently devoted my life to serving those most in need. And, you know, after spending five years abroad, you know, after college, you know, I came back to Boston to devote my life to tackling these very issues. And I see these issues each and every day at a place like Boston Medical Center, the city safety net hospital. And because what we're dealing with there is not just the acute tragedy or emergency that I see from a medical perspective. I mean, fundamentally, why people come to a place like Boston Medical Center, it's a reflection of the communities and the neighborhoods where they come from. It is ultimately when the trauma, the poverty, the lack of economic and educational opportunity, when that adds up, that will ultimately manifest into a medical emergency. Then I'll see them. And then you'll see these patterns. You know, I'll take care of someone who's overdosed three days in a row. You know, I'll take care of a gunshot victim who, by and large, is mostly often a young black and brown male. And you have to call into question, is this a coincidence? The answer is no, right? This is because of the system we live in that has created neighborhoods and communities that have always been in crisis long before COVID-19 was here and that have only gotten worse with COVID-19. Were you experiencing that just as a young person in Boston also? Sure. I mean, these are what we call in medicine and in public health the social determinants of health. It's the idea that, you know, these factors contribute to health care. And listen, I, I'm a Latino kid. I grew up in a poor family. You know, we had Section 8 housing. You know, we were in Boston during a very turbulent period, as you can recall, likely that late 80s, early 90s was the height of the gun violence epidemic in Boston. And, you know, whether that was my family uh, on government, uh, uh, using government support or, you know, watching my uncle get infected or, um, you know, gun violence on my streets. I mean, we understood this, you know, this has been my life story. And that's why this race for the mayor of Boston is very personal to me. It's not just about my patients, it's about my family, it's about my community. And this is the people I've been fighting for my entire life. And this is why I jumped in the race. How old were you when your family came from Puerto Rico to Boston? Well, I came to the States when I was about one. We ultimately moved to Boston in the late 80s. Uh, and I was in early elementary school. So forgive me for, for not remembering this. I, I tried to bone up on the details before talking with you and apparently didn't do a great job. But you came to the U, the, the um, continental U.S. when you, you were about one. Where did your family go initially before so you Puerto ended Ricans up? Puerto Ricans have a long tradition of migrating back and forth between the, the, the mainland, so to speak, and the island, right? And so if you look at Puerto Rican neighborhoods and communities in the United States, uh, the largest ones are New York, Florida, um, and uh, Boston, right? In Chicago as well. And so my family historically has migrated between these two, you know, ever since my father and mother were children. My, my, they were both born in Puerto Rico. They'd spent time growing up in uh, New York City or right, around, or right around New York. And, you know, we did the same thing. You know, we actually spent some time in Texas as well, um, in rural Texas. And, you know, we came to Boston because my father believed that this place could provide the opportunities for my family. And it did. And my father came here with the goal of graduating college. I mean, no one had graduated college in my entire family. And he did so at Northeastern University. He went to school full-time at night. He worked a full-time job during the day. My mother took ESL classes at UMass Boston. So for me, Boston has always been a place where if you dream big, if you work hard, good things can happen. But it's also been a tale of two cities as a result of my experiences living on Ruthven Street, right, and watching my uncle and watching our neighborhood, right? And ultimately, my parents made the decision that, you know, 
they couldn't afford the city, the gun violence epidemic, you know, things were getting rough and we left for a while. And, you know, right now, most of my family has left Boston. They live in the suburbs, they've left the state. And after I went abroad for about five years, I made a decision, a purposeful decision to come back to Boston to serve where everything started for me and my family. And, you know, I, I came back, you know, I wanted to be an HIV AIDS doctor all around the world. I had spent time working and living in Latin America and Europe and Africa, picked up languages, spoke Spanish and French and all these things. And I think the dream was to become uh, uh, an AIDS doctor in Haiti or the Congo. But my last year living abroad, I missed my country, you know, and all these disparities and issues that I'd grown an interest in. I realized that, you know, the place I love, the place where my family got their start of, they were experiencing the same thing. And so I came back to Boston, you know, over 10 years ago with $70 in my wallet, you know, and not knowing many people in the city. And I crashed on my friend's couch for a couple of months and started over again, you know, um, because this city brought my family its first, you know, taste of success. And the disparities that I, you know, from an intellectual perspective, I'd grown an interest in and wanted to do something about and wanted to serve, they were here. And so I came here, I went to medical school at Yale, and then I got my dream job at Boston Medical Center where I've been for the past six, seven years, really serving, as you know, the city's most vulnerable communities. And I often say that my job in the emergency department is not just a physician, you know, I'm a social worker, you know, uh, I do so many things there. Um, and because that's what, you know, people need in the emergency room at Boston Medical Center. It's a reflection of the community. It's the pulse of a neighborhood. And when I decided to run for office, you know, it was precisely as a result of my frustration with what I was seeing in my community, in my neighborhood, in my patients. I thought they deserved better representation. I thought they needed a fighter, an advocate. And that's why I ran for office in 2018. Soraya, I know you want to ask about BPS-related matters, but there's one thing I, I got to ask, and I, I feel bad. I was going to refer to you as John in this interview and then thank you as Rep Santiago, but Soraya started off calling you Rep Santiago, so I'll stick with that. I want to ask Rep Santiago, I knew that you had this experience in the Peace Corps, but I didn't know about your globetrotting as an HIV-AIDS physician. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that part of your bio? So I wasn't a physician yet. You know, I took somewhat of a non-traditional path to medical school, um, first and foremost, because, you know, as, as a poor Latino uh, student, I, you know, I didn't have a doctor to look up to, a scientist. I didn't, you know, I kind of had to figure out how this process worked. I knew I wanted to be a physician. I knew I wanted to serve the poor, the needy, the most underserved communities. But for me, I wanted to get some experience and understanding because I think, you know, medicine is much more than medications and symptoms and diagnoses, right? Again, why people come to a place like Boston Medical Center is a result of their neighborhood and their communities and what's missing there, right? And so I went on a path to spend two years abroad living and working in the Dominican Republic with Haitian immigrant communities there, you know, living with them, no running water, no electricity, supporting them, organizing workers. And that struck in me an interest in the importance of cultural competency and the importance of working hand in hand in partnership with communities. And the next, what turned in, what, what, what initially was two years turned into about five years. And so I did a Fulbright scholarship in, in Paris. Um, I spent some time working in West Africa as well. Um, you know, my life has really been about serving and, and finding my voice and how I wanted to best um, serve the people who need it the most. 
But ultimately, my last year living abroad in Paris, I, I missed I missed Boston, I missed America, I missed my people, and I said there's so much work to be done at home, um, and that's why I made the decision to come back. One of the big areas that's an opportunity for work with every mayor's race is the Boston public school system. I want to give our listeners a sense of what informs your perspective on BPS. Talk about your interaction with the system prior to becoming a candidate. Um, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know. Do, do you and your wife have children in BPS schools? No, we, we don't have children in BPS schools. Uh, we don't have children yet. Um, it's just me and my wife for now, at least. Um, but for me, education is very personal. Um, education for me has been, been my lifeline. Um, it's the only way that I got out of my station in life, right? Through education and through hard work. And listen, I did work hard, um, but there are a lot of kids in BPS who work hard. They just don't have the opportunities. And for me, I feel very lucky that there were a couple of people in my life who stepped in and said, hey, you know, you could do this or you, or you could be that. And as a result, that changed my entire life. I mean, Soraya, if it wasn't for a five-week summer program I did when I was 19 years old that introduced me to physicians and scientists, a public-private partnership that plucked disadvantaged kids, there is no way that I'd be standing here before you as a physician, as someone who ultimately got involved in politics. And so when I look at the system right now at Boston Medical, excuse me, at, at the BPS, you know, I see a system that is not offering the world-class education that it needs to be. Given all the resources, given all the money, given all the competitive advantages that the city of Boston has. And what, and what bother, bothers me the most is that I see myself in those children. You know, 30 years ago, that was me. You know, 70% of those kids are poor. 42% of Latino, that was me 30 years ago, right? And if it wasn't for some luck, I wouldn't be here, here where I am today. And the fact that we it required luck, I mean, it's a shame. And so when I think about the education system and when I ran the first time, you know, the state house had gone through several sessions without passing education reform. So that was a big priority of mine. And I'm very fortunate that in the first year in office that many of us with activists and advocates really stood up and, and sought education reform. And we passed a landmark bill, the Student Opportunity Act, really, that sought to address achievement gaps, gaps all across the Commonwealth. Um, but we still have achievement gaps here in Boston. And as mayor of Boston, I will be committed to addressing that, you know, by incentivizing, investing, and making sure that those children are prioritized because you know, that is the future of the city. And, and I'm dedicated to them and, and that's been my life's work. Soraya, I was hanging back to see if you wanted to ask about more BPS stuff because Soraya, Soraya is our city hall reporter. She's covering this in a way that, that I haven't been. But one area of discussion, as you know, is what the future of the Boston School Committee should be, whether it should remain an appointed body, essentially controlled by the mayor, whether it should become an elected body or maybe something in between, some sort of hybrid framework. What's your take on that? Well, fundamentally, in my conversations with parents, students, neighborhoods all across the city of Boston, many of them feel like they don't have a voice, like they haven't been listened to, you know? And I think, you know, in my conversations with them, um, they feel that the disappointed school committee, the way it serves right now, hasn't allowed them, you know, hasn't built the, the trust in that relationships that's required um, to move any progress forward. And so I'm very interested in exploring what a hybrid model looks like. And I think, you know, we're actively having conversations with um, community groups, parents, you know, BPS officials to better understand um, what type of 
committee would best foster that type of representation that was needed. And, you know, I think that's a it's a symptom that we're seeing all across the city of Boston, not just with respect to schools, but whether it's development, um, whether it's housing. I mean, people don't feel heard. And to me, uh, as an elected official, but as a physician, you know, I take that very personal because, you know, I, I'm a strong believer in the idea that we have two ears and one mouth and that we should be using that in that uh, proportion. You know, it's the same way I go about politics and medicine. I mean, there's a famous American physician who once said, listen to the patient, they will give you the diagnosis. And so when I knocked on 9,000 doors to win my first race, it wasn't knocking just to get their vote. It was knocking to listen, to engage, to learn, to grow, you know, and to make sure that their voices were heard. And some of the best experiences in that race, and in this race as well, is knocking on someone's door and starting a conversation and letting them know that, I, that I'm listening and I'm learning and that I'm engaging them. And that's what people want nowadays. Staying on the topic of education for a little bit, I know in the last forum you indicated some openness to charter schools as part of the education landscape. Talk about what BPS or the city of Boston can gain from charter schools. Well, I think charter schools have played an important part in the the innovation they brought to the table. You know, obviously we had uh, an important ballot question a couple of years ago. Um, and at the state level, um, you know, that was decided. Um, listen, you know, I'm a proponent of Boston Public Schools. As the mayor of Boston, I'm going to be committed to making sure that every Boston public school in every neighborhood has the resources and the tools to succeed and to provide that world-class education. But I think it's important that we, you know, use the practices and lessons learned at the charter schools to make our schools even better. I think they play an important part. And I think... Um, you know, the fact that many parents feel that if they have to go to a charter school is to, to get a proper education for their child. I think it's something that, you know, I want to rectify as the mayor of Boston. I'm committed to doing. Um, so I, I see them playing an important role. Um, but me as the mayor, I want to make sure that our Boston Public School um, it remains or it becomes you know, the uh, primary um, space for education and, and to addressing this achievement gap. I'd love to get you to weigh in on Mayor Walsh's legacy in his years running Boston. As you campaign to get the job that he had for quite a while, where do you think he succeeded and where do you think he fell short? Mayor Walsh, in my conversations with residents all across the neighborhood, he remains a a very popular mayor. Um, You know, he's done some some great things, some very noble things. And when I think about the best things about Mayor Walsh, I think about, you know, his response to the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, I think about a year ago today, I mean, we were afraid to walk outside, right? And we needed leadership, you know, um, to the utmost extent at the, at the, at the government level. And, and, and I'm proud to say that as a member of the legislature, you know, not only did I double my hours on the front lines in the ER, but I was part of the speaker's five-person committee to really provide that response. And Mayor Walsh himself provided an incredible amount of leadership in that very trying time. I mean, I remember walking into shifts in the ER and we quite literally had no idea what we were gonna do, where the PPE was gonna come from, who was gonna get sick, who was not gonna show up to work the next day. And people wanted to feel reassured and to know that someone had their back. And one thing that sticks out to me in particular was Mayor Walsh's response to the homelessness situation during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, when I got asked as a physician 
and as an elected official, which communities would be hit the hardest by COVID-19? For me, it was three. It was the elderly, it was the black and brown communities, which I've worked in um, as long as I can remember, and it was the homeless community. You know, Mayor Walsh understood the nexus between housing and COVID-19 and the importance of, listen, if you're going to tell people to social distance, isolate, they need a house, they need a place to be in. And so he immediately worked with the city and the state to house the homeless community. And as a result, what you saw was not the expected, you know, uh, increase in devastating numbers and of infection rates in the homeless community. And that's they fared actually, you know, fairly well. And I think that demonstrates his leadership um, with respect to um, the pandemic. Any areas where you don't think he performed as well as he could have? I'm wondering, among other things, I don't mean to accentuate the negative. And I think as someone who doesn't live in the city, I, but, but covered COVID at GBH News, I was continually struck by the fact that Mayor Walsh seemed to be out ahead of Governor Baker when it came to responding aggressively. At least that was my layperson's assessment. And also, when it came to, uh, you know, inviting and engaging communities of color, right? I mean, he was one of the first leaders to, to get out there and, and, and put that into motion. I think, you know, with respect to some of Mayor Walsh's, you know, more challenging uh Aspects. I think he would admit, I think he's done this publicly as well, is that, you know, the, the challenge of the Boston public schools, you know, um, you know, the, the, the growing achievement gap that's only gotten worse in COVID-19. Um, that is something that we've all been struggling with. Right. You know, as leaders, as elected officials, you know, as parents and the like. And, you know, I think, you know, he's discussed that and and he's attempted to do something about that. He's moved us forward in the area of, you know, pre-K and universal pre-K. We're not there yet. You know, I want to be the mayor to get us to universal pre-K for sure. But I think that's something, you know, um, you know, we could and should need, we definitely need to prove upon. Um, but I think the the future of Boston, you know, you know, what voters are most concerned about is, you know, with all due respect to Mayor Walsh, you know, he's in D.C. now, right? Um, people want to talk about now and the future and what that looks like, because I submit to you that as challenging as this year has been, and it's been one hell of a year, right? I mean, I would imagine that you folks have been impacted or infected or in some way, um, you know, impacted by the virus, that the real challenge is the next two, three, four years and what that recovery looks like, right? I mean, this is just the beginning. You know, my hope is that, you know, the light is becoming brighter at the end of the tunnel and that we're beginning to loosening up this tourniquet of this patient that is in crisis. But the challenges is the next two, three, four years. And I look at it as one heck of an opportunity to hit reset. And we are going to have the resources to do that, whether that's the hundreds of millions of dollars coming from the federal government, or whether that's the state government joining us. And again, as a state representative who understands state government, who has the relationships on there with the governor and with the legislature to fight for Boston, to be Boston's best advocate, we are primed and positioned um, to lead the city to that recovery um, that is very much rooted in equity and opportunity. Uh, Representative Santiago, I know in your comments in receiving endorsements from labor groups that you've remarked on the significance and just the tradition of the mayor of Boston working in tandem with organized labor, I wonder how your view of that relationship would impact how you make decisions when it comes to situations where labor's interests and the city's interests seem to be at odds. One really big example, I think, is 
our pretty bad record of diversity in public contracting. Um, Another example, if I could get you to remark on both, is the case of Patrick Rose, where it seems like the very powerful police union made a path for a problematic officer to come back on the force. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think you bring up two examples where you're right. I mean, this is why we need political courage and leadership in, in, on the fifth floor in City Hall for these precise reasons, right? And I think you're going to need a leader who understands the importance of bringing folks together and understanding both sides. And that's something we've done our entire, my entire life, right? That's what I do uh, as an emergency room doctor um, when life and death decisions are, are, need to be made. That's what I've done as a soldier in the U.S. Army. Uh, by bringing folks together to uh, achieve complex missions, right? And you're right, there are going to be part you know, um, situations where a, a, a union and, and the city might be bumping heads, right? Um, but I believe and um, the fact that we can bring folks together. And I think what's inspiring to me about this race for the city of Boston is that you know, some would argue that the neighborhoods are very different, and they are. But I fundamentally believe that the neighborhoods have a lot more in common with each other than, they th- than we think they do, right? Whether that's Roxbury or West Roxbury or, or South or JP. And I feel, you know, we can get to an agreement and compromise and uh, in City Hall, you know, whether it's a labor union or whether it's a, a sort of city department that feels like they're not getting their way. Um, I'm committed to working and listening to people. And again, this starts with my desire to listen and learn and engage. You know, when I think about the police issue, what we did at the state house, we passed police reform, like we did it there, and that started by a group of black and brown legislators who led that, who spoke with the speaker of the house, who spoke with the senate, senate president, and said, "Look, we want to lead. These these are our demands, and let's get to work." And the very first conversations we had were with both sides of the debate, the activists and the advocates and the police. And as a result, we came and put forth a plan um, that I would argue was uh, common sense, accountability measures to get things done. And we did that. And that started with listening. And that's my approach to, you know, politics. That's my approach in the ER. And that's my approach to getting things done. And then respect with respect to police specifically, I'm curious. I know that you watched uh, Trial 4 while you were out on deployment. Um, I did, yes, I did. I'm, I'm not from Boston, but, you know, I certainly was taking notes and just taking away from the historical aspects of that case, watching the docuseries. I wonder, as a person who has lived here for a long time and as a person who's seeking to lead the city, what did you take away from watching that? And how is that playing into your approach to policing on the campaign trail. You know, I mean, and, and some can make the the parallel between that and, and what most recently happened with Patrick Rose, right? I mean, there's been, you know, I am personally outraged by the breach of public trust and abuse in the system, right? I mean, there's a code of silence and it needs to be changed. And, you know, in the case of Patrick Rose, I mean, Boston needs to know why he was kept in the job and why that decision was made. I mean, I'm a firm believer that no one is above the law. Right. You know, not Patrick Rose, not anyone in BPD, not myself. And so we're committed to that transparency, that openness to get to the bottom of the things. But I submit to you, Saraya, that the vast majority of Boston public, uh, the BPD, are good people. You know, I have an interesting perspective on this. You know, I I'm listen, I'm a Puerto Rican guy who's been pulled over a number of times. I've been thrown over a police car. Uh, you know, I've been illegally searched. I've been intimidated by cops, you know, for no real reason aside from who I am. You know, I don't have a ticket on me. That's how clean I am. 
a parking ticket or a speeding ticket. Um, so I know what it feels like to be that minority person who's been, you know, intimidated. At the same time, you know, every shift I work in the emergency department, I work with cops. Every shift, you know, and I see the noble things that they do. I mean, just this recently, you know, last week, you know, I mean, we could talk about this issue as well, just violent crime in the city, right? You know, I took care of a number of people who had been impacted by gun violence, right? And this one story really stuck out to me. It was uh, a cop who essentially flung a victim of gun violence on a gurney, on a stretcher, and just raced him through the emergency department and brought him to the ER um, so that we could save his life, right? And he showed bravery, and he brought him in there, and... I was the first one in the room with him. It was just me, the cop, and this poor, you know, 21-year-old male who had been shot in the chest. And we went to work. I called the team, and, and we did the best we can to save the patient's life. And so they, the, many of them are noble in what they do. I also think that the demands that have been placed on them as someone who works with them on a nightly basis, you know, whether it's a mental health substance use issue that they're facing on mass and casts, you know, they don't, you know, they've been called to address situations that they're not necessarily prepared or trained to deal with, right? So I think as mayor of Boston, one thing that I'd be immediately implementing is some sort of diversionary program, um, excuse me, diversion program where other cities do it, right? You know, where you can implement more appropriate teams and resources to address mental health substance use issues, right? Because every shift I work in the emergency department, I guarantee you, I will take care of at least three or four patients that are brought in by cops, right? That are suffering from mental health, substance use, homelessness issues, where in reality, those patients would be best served by a mental health clinician, a paramedic. I mean, it would be a more appropriate service from a public health perspective, but also would save money as well and would allow the cops to do the jobs that they need to be doing. Just so I'm clear on this, are you talking about removing police officers from those calls or having them accompanied by people with different types of expertise as they respond to those calls? Well, I mean, it depends on the level of the call. I mean, you know, 911 fields, you know, hundreds of thousands of calls per year, and that rate has only increased, you know? I mean, get call, cops get called for everything, you know? And depending on the situation of the call, I mean, it's up to them to triage, you know? Uh, and that's what we do in the emergency department. We triage depending on the level of severity and what we're hearing. You know, our response is predicated on that, right? And, you know, implementing a program that, you know, if someone is having uh, a mental health issue um, that's complicated by drug use, which we often see here where I live on Mass and Cass, um, sometimes you might need a police officer. You know, I've seen these things, you know, turn into violent for sure, violent issue, you know, violent um, situations, but many times they don't, you know, and you know, I think it's, you know, if we provide the training and the resources to Boston EMS and 911 to, to provide those appropriate resources, I think we can have some success in that. I mean, look, it's worked all around, all around the country. You know, I was looking at the model in, in Portland and in Austin, Texas recently, and not only do they have better health outcomes, but they also save money. And it would boost morale. I mean, I look, you know, when the cops bring these folks in sometimes, you know, they're challenged by them. I mean, they're very challenging cases, right? Sometimes that they don't want to be involved with it. They don't necessarily have to be involved with. Um, and to me, it's about how do we reduce the demand of the police and set up services where we can get more appropriate care to address um, these issues. 
I have to ask you uh, to offer your assessment of acting mayor Kim Janey's performance to date. And I'll, I'll immediately self-edit my question. What I'm really wondering is whether there is anything that acting mayor Janey has done uh, since she's been running the city that you look at and say, actually, I would have done that differently in such and such a way. If there is, I'd love to hear about it. Well, I think, you know, she's, I mean, she's been there for what, a month, two months? I don't know. You know, and it's hard. I have a month in my head. A month in my head. Yeah. And so it's, it's really hard to, you know, put an assessment on that. Um, what I will say, and, you know, and there's no judgment on there, I'm just curious to know the decision. I mean, as you know, Governor Baker put forward his, essentially his reopening plan um, a couple days ago. And the response from the administration was to delay by three weeks, right? And so something that we've been fighting for in the state house is what are the benchmarks, right? And allow them to be transparent, right? And so if we're going to delay opening by three weeks, you know, tell me why and show me why in the data and the statistics. And it very well could be that Boston merits a three-week delay in opening. It could be. But I can tell you that there are a lot of people who, particularly in the business community, in the small business community, that want to restart things as soon as possible. Now, I would never endanger, you know, as a physician and a public health um, practitioner uh, who's been dead set focused on the virus, making sure that folks uh, and families are protected and vaccinated. In fact, I started our own vaccination clinic where we're up to about 2,000 people vaccinated in the city of Boston. Um, But I just want to have a better understanding of this because I think the public deserves to know if we're going to delay for three weeks, you know, I mean, how much more social isolation, you know, how much more, you know, time must we need until these until these businesses can get back up to running 110 percent representative santiago i'm going to go in a completely different direction with my last question i'm curious it seems like you've had an antithetical experience to everybody else in the pandemic because you've been working and experiencing what the front lines are like every day and now you're jumping into an intense mayor's race how are you caring for your mental health? The rest of us have had time to like sit back and be in the house and practice good, hopefully meditation, yoga, whatever brings us like peace and, and stillness of mind in this pandemic. How are you caring for yourself? Well, well, thank you for the question. But for me, what brings me peace and stillness of mind, to steal your words, Soraya, is, is service. Is, is the idea that, you know, I have an obligation to those who are underserved, right? And so if I'm not uh, there on the front lines, you know, if I'm not there in the state house trying to pass policy that's, that are fighting for and advocating for those most underserved, if I'm not in this mayor's race, you know, you know then for me, you know, I'm not getting the peace that I need, right? Because there is a crisis happening right now that has been made worse by COVID-19. And when I got back from deployment, you know, I, I got on December 15th, I got both my shots. I was back on the front lines in the emergency room during that second surge. I was back on the speaker's team. And then when Marty Walsh got the tap to become the Secretary of Labor, I got to thinking, the city's in crisis. You know, the recovery is going to be long. It's going to be difficult, particularly for the communities I care most about. You know, the city needs leadership. They need someone who's going to execute and get things done. And that's what I've done my whole life, is bring crisis leadership to the forefront to get things done. And that's what this race is about, and that's what the future of Boston needs. And 
and two months ago I made the decision to jump in. And, and to me, you know, it, it has it been exhausting? Absolutely. But it's been worth every minute, you know. When I take care of a patient who I see who said, hey, I, you know, or I'm walking the streets and I'll say, hey, doctor, you took care of me. Thank you for that. Or, or you know, I'll, I'll call a, a patient a week after I saw them in the emergency department to check, check in on them and to say that they're fine. To me, that what gets me going. That what gets me in, uh, enthusiastic, energized, and and it makes me want to do more. And so, yes, it has been challenging, um, but this is you know, this is what I'm about. This is what leaders are, are called to do in moments of crisis. Man, you can't do that work if you're taxed. What else are you doing to relax? <laughs> uh, I have the best partner in the world. Uh, my wife is the most understanding, and. Uh, kind and gentle and the most amazing cook um and my wife god bless her you know my, i met my wife abroad so my wife is uh, actually a uh, an immigrant from france and and so she's come to boston and she's you know a professional in her own right and a lot more intelligent than i am but she's what you know keeps things steady in my life and you know i, I do some exercise i recently started uh jogging again and uh, on a daily basis, and I love to read. And so I think uh, a combination of those three things and excellent Italian food at Mita uh, at the corner of Mass and Tremont in the South End, where we've been once a week for the past year, I want to say, <laughs> um, is what keeps me going. Representative John Santiago, thank you for taking time to have this convo. Thank you to you both. And that's going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to John Santiago for joining me and Soraya, and to you for listening. If you've got suggestions for topics we should be covering or people you want to hear from, please let us know. We're at scrum at wgbh.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter Kadzis is at Kadzis. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews with one T. We'll talk to you again soon. The Scrum is a production of GBH News.